11 to 1. Monday motivation. Motivation. On LMFM. Growing up in a large family, one of six children in a lodge in the Phoenix Park, attending a desk school, Life as a successful businesswoman was not something that Nora Casey would have imagined she could be back then. Starting her career in nursing, she left for Scotland where she spent years working in the burns and plastic surgery area of nursing before realising this was not the career for her. She started at the bottom again in journalism, working her way up as a reporter and training in TV studio production at Ealing College and radio broadcasting with the BBC. After spending time working as a reporter, editor, editorial director, working for many well-known publications as well, she moved up the ranks of management and was a CEO at the age of just 29. Today she's the founder of an award-winning company Harmonia, an Irish publishing house behind such titles including Irish Tatler, Woman's Way and You Magazine. She's a broadcaster, author, in-demand, motivational public speaker and a real advocate and support for women in business. Nora Casey, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with us today for Monday Motivation. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, and the sun is out. So it's like a little gift, a little day that we should have had in the summer that they've given us on a Monday to cheer us all up. Oh, absolutely. I saw, I, that is exactly the sentiment I echoed this morning when I started the show. <laughs> but, you know, I did quite a bit of research on yourself. And one thing that struck me when I was doing this background research uh, was a sentence that is on your website. And it says, I would never have imagined that I could ever be a businesswoman. Now, when I read this, is how you felt about yourself and the woman who you are today, who was so hugely successful in business and in life. It's so hard to imagine you thinking this. So I'm wondering, when did the idea that you could be a businesswoman enter your head? And how did you silence that inner voice that said you can't be this? I think going back to me when I was younger, I guess growing up in the Phoenix Park, I was nearly a a resident of Dublin Zoo. I lived there morning, (laughs) noon and night and any time I could get my hands on um, a free bit of time, I was up there. Even when I left school, I left at 16 and I was there for the whole of that summer raising two baby gorillas. So I would always said I would do something with animals um, and nursing was a bit of a sideswipe. It was in Scotland on the banks of Loch Lomond and uh, (laughs) there were eight of us in that lodge, three bedroom lodge. So I think I was more taken with the idea of escaping Ireland (laughs) and going to somewhere that I thought was pretty much like Ireland, but not so far away, Scotland, you know. But I think the reason I never imagined being a businesswoman is I'd never met one. I didn't see, at that time, you didn't see very visible evidence of women in any powerful positions. Um, A couple of newsreaders maybe, but the newspapers were full of men in business suits. Politics was full of men. I really, the closest to a businesswoman would have been the woman who owned the shop outside the park gates and Mm. um, so I I think it goes back to that old saying if you can't see it you can't be it it just never crossed my mind I think that anyone who starts off in life to be a nurse um, you know my ambition at that time and never since has been to make money I always say that to young people if, if all you want to do is go out and make money then you know it's kind of they often say ambition is the death of leadership um you really want to go out and achieve something and make a difference. And I thought that being a nurse, I would make a difference. Um, Unfortunately, at the end of five years, I felt, uh, and I love nurses and I feel I'm among my own when I'm with them. Um, But I felt that I couldn't actually do what I wanted to do. Most nurses will understand that you end a shift and you haven't done enough or you haven't got the right resources or you didn't hold that hand long enough or maybe you didn't even hold that hand at all. Um, Maybe you just ignored all the people that you couldn't actually help to try and um, get 
to the people that you could. And it's a terrible feeling. It's an awful feeling at the end of, of busy, long shifts, not to feel like you're doing what you really set your heart out to do to start with. Um, I wouldn't have said I was a very confident person, mm. young person. Um, it's going to sound really extraordinary to say this, but um, the experience of living with and marrying somebody who was abusive changed me fundamentally and somebody recently asked me to talk about the day that um, changed my life and I guess they thought I would talk about the death of Richard but actually the day I drove away from that marriage was the day that everything changed for me in the future it's it's really hard to go back there and you know everyone I even look at my 20s and think how on earth did I do all of that I was you know studying Every weekend, every evening, I'd actually started my MPhil at the University of Wales, gone on to my PhD. I'd already transitioned into journalism and not just did my my journalism, print journalism, postgraduate programme, but as you say, did TV. There's a reason for all of that. I wasn't having a very good personal life and I was escaping into, you know, into workaholic work mode. And, yeah. and I had tried to leave him many times and didn't because you know there was threats of taking his own life or throwing all my clothes out the window and I would you know I we lived in the south um near Wimbledon in London and I worked up in the north and um I kept driving into work on a Monday really upset with myself that I hadn't actually said goodbye to him and Friday evenings with great hope I would drive home um, from Harlow and think I'm definitely going to do it this weekend so after many failed attempts and by the way I had a little speech prepared because I was two years trying to leave him and after particularly a violent incident in particular I just pledged I would leave him even though it took me a while to do it um, so I had my speech prepared I'm not really sure why that particular morning I got up at five o'clock had a shower packed a really tiny bag and you have to remember I was leaving behind everything mm -hmm. I was leaving him behind um, I hoped um, but I was also leaving behind my home I had no financial security I really was just still trying to find my feet in work terms and um, I had no savings no nothing so I woke him up and made my little speech um, and he started to snore after a few minutes it was just I mean I I remember at the time going into this big speech in the mm. bedroom and listening to him completely, you know, dismissive mm. of me to start with and then going asleep. But I drove away from that house in this little red car with just my bag, no possessions. I left behind all my clothes on. Everything that I owned was in that house. Um, and it felt like I was driving off a cliff. And I remember talking to my sister and I asked her recently, do you remember me? Talking? She said, of course, I remember you talking to me that day. And I felt like on the one hand, I was, you know, in free fall, but on the other hand, my life could possibly begin. And I promised myself over those few days, I, I went to work, of course, in those days, you never told anybody, mm. nobody in work knew, but I stayed at the Ibis at Heathrow Airport. It was the cheapest place to stay. I just looked it up and um, I was sitting on the floor in these, you know, paper thin walled rooms and listening to these families who were excitedly going off on holiday and laughing and, you know, for them, loads of great things about to happen and me homeless and not, you know, I was still worried about what was going to happen to me, but at the same time, and there was an inner steel that was like, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. I'm going to stand on my own two feet. I'm going to make my own money. Nobody's ever got going to own me in that kind of way again. And and from that, I think 
loads of things in my life changed. I mean, firstly, of course, I met Richard. And I mm. think if God gives you a bad one, you end up getting an absolutely incredible one. So he was amazing. And we wouldn't have had Dara, my son, who is just, you know, everything to me. And I would never have actually started my own business. I would never have had, I suppose, the courage or the conviction. I still wasn't that confident when I left Peter first. But over time, you know, it's yeah. the wonderful thing about plasticity is that when you do things for the first time, you can do them the second time and a third time and uh, you get better at it. But I definitely felt that if I had the intellect and the health and everything that I needed, that I could do almost anything. I just had that feeling that now I've taken that huge risk in walking away from him. There's nothing that I can't do. There's nothing that you can't face. And, you know, I know you've spoken so, you know, candidly and th- and thank you for doing so now, uh, you know, in the past about this and, you know, obviously gone into, you know, detail of the horrific abuse that you, you did suffer. I mean, when you were literally on your knees on the ground, literally, physically, mentally battered, what is going through your mind? Like, are you, how, because I imagine in that scenario, you are, Uh, feeling the words that he is saying you are, like that you are worthless, you are this, you are that. How do you then get to that point where you go, I'm going to leave this man, I have to strike out at my own. And how do you then change that inner dialogue? Yeah, you. I I know you were playing um, the TED talk I did after Richard died on Mm. grief, but I did another one which was on um, how did you leave? You know, I I, I think that the popular thing to say to women is, you know, why did you stay? And I had sat in many chat shows, by the way, in total mortification when this topic would come up about a man who cheated on you or did something to you. And I was surrounded by these powerful women who would, you know, say categorically, they would walk out the door, they'd leave him. And I was totally thinking I was a doormat. And But it's very, very complicated. I can't describe how it's happens that you're sort of bound up in this sort of relationship which has got loving elements to it and you crave the kind of attention that comes after in the aftermath of a very bad incident and it's like a vicious circle I mean I was perpetually frightened and always trying to please so you know it's it's a very odd scenario I think for people to understand I would say that the biggest change happened to me when I told my mom. Mm. Um, I would I would always say that to people that the longer I was there for you know, nine years in that relationship. And I kept up the same pretense that he did to the outside world, that nothing was going wrong. In fact, if anything, he showered me with gifts. If I turned up at my house in Dublin, you know, for a surprise visit or to see my mum and dad, he would have flowers waiting. And my dad thought he was the most amazing man. You know, you've Mm. landed on your feet and he would always be overly you know, generous with gifts and it was all very public showing of gifts and I guess I wanted to keep that up too and I kept convincing myself that, you know, there was a lot of friendship there and we'd been together a while and somebody who loves me so much, you know, he would always, you know, be so apologetic and you end up in this spiral of forgiving and believing that something's going to change in the future. Of course, like now I know that that's never, ever going to change. I mean, if I had known at my early 20s, the first time he hit me, that he was never going to stop. I like to think I wouldn't have married him, you know, so mm. I, I spend a lot of time trying to focus my energies on young people and toxic relationships. Um, but I think going back to your point, telling my mom 
there was this particular weekend that I'd gone home on my own, which was unusual. And it was a family event. And my mom had noticed things in a previous visit. She noticed that my face was very red. He'd slapped me for some reason. And um, I heard her having a, an argument with him actually um, outside by the car. So I think she knew herself that he was being abusive to me. So when I went home this particular time, she tackled me and I told her. And I kind of knew then that I had to leave him, um, first of all, because my mother would have told my brothers and I don't know whether they'd be serving prison sentences yeah. Since, yeah. <laughs> since then. So, you know, in a way, I kind of knew that if it exploded within the family without me having done anything about it, something more terrifying might happen, you know. So I did. That That gave me, I think, the power to say I'm definitely going to leave and I think afterwards I relied enormously on my family and one or two close friends I had a really close friend who's a nurse um, she's in Northern Ireland and she really saved me in many ways and she eventually having slept on people's sofas and floors and everything else she found um, an apartment that I could um, rent for a period of time until I got myself back on my feet you know yeah and so, it's important to have these amazing yeah. people ar- around you and you know you mentioned Richard and you mentioned of course that he was this absolute godsend of a man but then he dies and then of course you're feeling adrift and everything else but are there times when you think I've gone through this horrific experience with, with you know, with that I've come back out of. I've met this man who is just everything. He's given me this, you know, a wonderful son, Dara. Do you ever think, why me? Why is he now being taken? What have I done? Because it'd be very easy to, you know, go into a corner and, and curl up and, and think that the world and God and the universe is against you. Yeah, I feel all those things. <laughs> I felt all those things. And at times, if I let myself, I could get back into that zone in my mind. I try to tell myself all the time that there's lots of people who go through life having never discovered that type of love. I certainly know people in relationships where, particularly over the course of the pandemic, maybe it showed all the cracks and um, maybe they stayed together for different reasons. I I was so fortunate in my life to have found that level of love and People always laugh if I say soulmate, but I do think he was the other mm. half of me. It was it, we had an incredibly strong relationship and really enjoyed each other's companies. I mean, so much so he was working for the BBC for twenty years, and he eventually left, took a sabbatical, and um, came into the business with me. And people often thought that was a bit, you know, would that put a strain on? The, if anything, it, it brought us together even more closer. Firstly, because he was no interest in in uh, money or financial issues. He used to sing if I talked about the budgets. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a great editorial director and, of course, the most charming man on the planet. So he could charm sales into the business in a way that I couldn't. Um, so I think when he got sick first, he was 48. And, you know, it was... It was earth shattering for me. I felt like everything had gone, not just, you know, this big hole where Richard used to be, um, but my whole future. I mean, I've often talked about that, that it's the strangest feeling when you spent quite a lot of your life imagining what would happen at various different chapters. And, you know, for Richard and I, we'd forfeited holidays and all sorts of things in our lives. We remortgaged the house to buy the business. And there we were coming to some point where we might have enjoyed something um, as a result of all of that work and very cruelly he ended up having a very fast and aggressive cancer he was gone within a matter of months Mm -hmm. and um, I certainly had a degree of rage inside me about that that it was so unfair for him 
that he never got to do all the things he wanted to do. And very unfair on myself and Dara that we were left behind without him and not really knowing what I was going to do next because everything, my whole future was really bound up with Richard and it felt like there was nothing in front of me. I was just treading water and the business was not a great place for me mm. uh, when I did go back into it I was picking up emails from Richard and um, everybody in the company was bereaved for him and it just probably wasn't and and also running media companies and publishing companies you need loads of energy and I was that kind of person like I'd yeah. bounce into the room into the building everyone knew I was there I'd be talking and shouting and sitting on people's desks and laughing and joking and a bit of banter and brainstorming and then I was sliding up the stairs hoping nobody would hear me and closing the door in my office and not wanting to talk or engage with anyone I, I think eventually what really happened is that I wanted to go back to maybe standing on my own two feet again maybe that's my default position and um, my brother went in and ran the business for me and I went off gallivanting on Newstalk <laughs> and uh, RT you, you, you know, you, you finished make... an epic season of Dragon's Den. I think I think at the time I did 13 episodes of The Takeover, wrote my book, was doing, you know, 4am starts from Newstalk Breakfast, was doing the afternoon show on a Friday in Cork and, you know, loads of comedians were making jokes about me, you know, I remember... Um, them saying, oh, there's loads of jobs in Ireland, it's just Nora Casey has them all, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I, I kind of thought time would run out at 3am if I wasn't working hard enough. And I did come out of that phase. It took yes. me maybe three years. But did it, would, it. would you say it saved you? Would you say throwing yeah. yourself and your energy into, because you, you, another thing that you say is that you don't have a work-life balance. And I mean that in the best possible way, in yeah, that your work is your life and your life is your work, that you love it that yeah. much, which is fantastic. So do you think that your love for you know media and for broadcasting and that career actually saved you I think the hard work saved me the most amazing thing um that happened I stood in for Vincent Brown was the first thing that I did I I, I my mum had persuaded me to take a house in the countryside in Wicklow and myself and Dara were kind of you know wandering around <laughs> the forest listening to the rain and um maybe my head and myself weren't too good uh, company at the time. Mm. I I found myself with too much time on my hands, maybe. And your brain is, uh, I, I think it's fascinating, but it sometimes wants you to take a break before you have to accept things. So I had nothing to say, couldn't talk to anybody, avoided talking to anybody because, of course, the first one, I'm so sorry for your loss and I didn't want to get into that loop. And, you know, even good friends might be all week working and, you know, having great distractions. And then they'd say, come over for supper on Friday night. And that as soon as I walk through the door, I remind them of Richard and they yeah. get maudlin and upset and it might be my only time for distraction. So um, when I stood in for Vincent Brown, I was kind of, how crazy that was is I was monosyllabic. I couldn't have a sentence with anybody. I was almost reclusive um, living in Wicklow. And there I'm crazily saying, yeah, sure, I'll sit in for Vincent Brown. <laughs> I still, I can't describe the rash on my neck um, when I sat in that seat thinking, what are you doing here? Are you? I thought I was just lost uh, my whole sense of reason. I, my mouth was dried, a huge rash going down from my neck to my chest. I couldn't see straight, couldn't even see the autocue. Now, this is the kind of stuff I used to do all the time in my yeah. 20s, but it had been quite a while. 
But you know what? When it started, and it was on something like the fiscal treaty, it was just the most pleasant of topics. But I got really excited. I was going home talking to my mom, and I was saying, "Did you hear what he said?" And I just couldn't stop talking. I was so excited, and she said, "Oh my goodness, that's the most I've heard you talk in eight months." I and I, I kind of realised something that when your personal life is in such disarray, and um, you need some respite from all of that, you know, horror of being on your own and being left behind, and mm that your business life or your, you know, your work life could be quite energizing. And of course, I then completely got sucked into it and lived in current affairs and politics. And there wasn't a thing I didn't know a little bit about. Believe you me, it's all ditched out of my head now. But <laughs> I highly time... doubt that. I highly doubt that. But I do love that story because, and I do love the fact that you, Nora Casey, had a lump in your throat and froze. Well, and all, that makes me feel so good because <laughs> it means if yeah. Nora Casey can do it, I can do it. Um, but very, very quick, before uh, before I go to an ad break, um, I always finish off more uh, Monday motivation by asking people like yourself who are successful at life to talk us through your morning routine. What do you need to do each morning to be as productive as you can be? Uh, walk. I, I I love walking, and I like you know walking along the Dodder or the Phoenix Park are my two favourites. And sometimes Bray, my my sister's in Bray, um, but I just love it. It clears my head. It helps me prepare for the day. I I work predominantly pro bono, helping women. I'm doing some nursing duties, so I I just learned myself that unless unless somebody said to me your cup has to be full before you start you know pouring out for other people, so I try very hard to do that. And then gallons of tea. I have to say. I'm a big tea <laughs> drinker. <laughs> but you do start the day very early, don't you? I do. Um, I usually try and do my social media posts around half five, quarter to six, which is ridiculously early. But that's just, I just got into a routine of doing that. If I'm doing anything, it'll be something maybe on LinkedIn that is to do with mentorship or women empowerment or, you know, especially during the pandemic, I felt there was a lot of people out there who are really struggling and mm. I could see that visibly every day I was doing mentorship calls with women across the world and it doesn't really matter like we always think here in Ireland you know I have women that I help mentor in India and Africa across Europe and in the US. Um, this is all part of Planet Woman isn't it? No I, no? I actually uh, yes it is in a way but I work with Vital Voices it was started by Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright oh, yes, yes. it comes out of Washington but it's a global organisation I'm on the European board but I'm also a global ambassador so I have been mentoring women for a number of years with them and you know in the early part of the pandemic there was a lot of tears a lot of upset I mean a lot of those women um, in particular were in households where they were the only people earning and suddenly their businesses had gone to zero they were letting go of people that they really loved and felt part of their workforce and sadly had to furlough and there was a lot of the stages of grief you know mm. that I was seeing in, in women during that time and it should be a revolution for women now to all intents and purposes you know when you can work remotely and men are doing a little bit more around the house <laughs> uh, it should be this should be the renaissance of women in leadership sadly I have to say all I see is evidence of actually women being the first to be let go um, increasingly you know I'm at the receiving end of webinars and programs and media that is defaulted back to men mm. and not women um, in politics sadly most of the faces that we see all day every day are men and I'm not saying anything about that I'm just saying that you know if you look at the pandemic and where it's done really well throughout the world it's where there were women women leaders um, and we just have a, such a deficit of that here in Ireland and and maybe because of adversity 
you know, I feel that those people who went through some difficulties in their life probably coped an awful lot better during yes. the pandemic. Yes. There's an element of the world tilting, but you kind of recognise in that because you've been there before. You know? mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I mean, I, as I say, I doing some research on this last night, I really admire that aspect of what you do in terms of empowering women, uh, making, you know, sure and encouraging women to, to go for the various goals that they have to be the top, to be the CEO, you know, that you found yourself, uh, you know, in that position and you were one of, one of the, perhaps the only woman or definitely one of a few. Yeah, Sinead, the I would say that the, the biggest difference in women um, for me is having a good mentor. Mm. And we just don't have enough of them here in Ireland, which is great because I have this global group of women, you know, that I can call on to help mentor. And I help them with some of the women they're mentoring. And uh, you need someone else sometimes in your life to believe in you when you don't really believe in yourself. You know, yes. that's what I feel the power of a great mentor is to give you the confidence to and sometimes your life's a model like you know I'm talking to women sometimes they have children they're Mm. juggling work and school demands and you know I'm the one who says come on let's get up on the mountain let's stay leave the valley behind let's get up on this mountain and see where you're going and what you're doing and how we can make this work for you and the ones that I am mentoring certainly there's we've had such really positive results there's a a woman in Delhi that I've been mentoring for a while and she has a company called On Hotel which is basically the coolest Airbnb but way cooler in India if you ever get a chance to go there and don't want to stay in a large chain hotel this is the hotel provides beautiful homesteads and you know in the lakes and in the in the uh, forests and the mountains Mm. but of course within 24 hours she lost all her revenue i mean india has been very badly hit but over the course of you know working with her her husband manish um they now have a phenomenal digital studio called uh, studio four they leaned into experiences they had in the past so and they adapted obviously to 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 everything that's going on yeah yeah and that's the that's the key there's a great woman from Ethiopia who lives in Brussels now and literally her father grew up in a mud hut in Ethiopia in Addis Ababa and um, she's now running a phenomenal award-winning boutique agency basically explaining the rules of the EU to a particular sector of industry and that sector happened to be um, ships and mainly around oil spillages and regulation mm. and of course they were hit the hardest yeah the hardest during the pandemic I was with her just a few weeks beforehand in Brussels when it was shipping week and then suddenly all the ships in the world are in dry dock or they're worse they're out at sea and they can't dock and you know she switched her business now to sustainable development goals more in the environmental yeah. space um, which which is great it's very it's very much part of what's going to happen to the world I hope over the next few years absolutely and and, and, this, recovery. and this, this is the thing and it's and as you say it's important to, to have the, the, the mentorship and people that have been in these yeah. you know very difficult decisions in terms of business and trying to switch it all around Nora I could talk to you all day I really <laughs> could I didn't even touch on half of the stuff that I wanted to talk to you on the show today but listen thank, thank you, you so so much for taking the time because I know you're incredibly busy to give us much needed Monday motivation today Thank you so much thanks for having me Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.